0: What's up, everybody? My name is Matt Hartman, and you are listening to the Spoke Dispatch Podcast. This is officially episode number one. Super, super stoked on this. Hope you guys like it. Uh, Today on the show, we have Nick Hand of TW Carbon. So I met Nick a few months back when I needed some work done on a frame. I had uh, done some damage to my carbon frame at a gravel bike ride. And I always knew there was a guy in town that did carbon repair, and I never really needed it, thankfully. Um, But I'd seen him more and more on social media and heard his name a lot more seen a lot of the work he had done especially his paint it was awesome so I thought hey I'm gonna reach out to this guy kind of start a conversation and see what we can do uh, about getting this frame fixed Nick's a really awesome guy and we hit it off and uh, after uh, back and forth conversations working on this frame got to know him a little bit better and I was like man I gotta have this guy on this show so we went to his shop we took some pictures uh, of his shop you can see those on spokebikes.com and uh without further ado, enjoy the show. We're uh, on the show with Nick from TW Carbon.
1: This is actually the first Spoke Dispatch podcast. So it's pretty exciting, a little nerve-wracking. Yeah. Um, have
0: Very you cool been
1: on a podcast before? No, never. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see how this goes. Okay. Yeah, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to kind of dig into Nick and um, and TW Carbon, you know, what carbon repair is, the process, um, you know, just kind of of the science behind carbon and what makes it what it is and why we use it for bikes and wheels and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, let's go ahead and just kind of start by talking about you, Nick. Um,
2: Where'd you grow up? I am I'm from uh, the uh, Chicagoland area, uh, grew up in a west suburb of uh, Glen Ellyn, have uh, had two brothers, um, two younger brothers. We were all pretty athletic kids growing up. Uh, I actually was uh, way into baseball for most of my life. And then uh, probably right before, it, I think in junior high, I started getting into bikes a lot. Uh, Got my first real mountain bike uh, in junior high for Christmas. Looked everywhere to try to uh, figure out how to start racing bikes. My dad had raced road bikes for the Pepsi Schwinn team uh, up in Chicago, and I I wanted to, uh, you know, be like my dad and (laughs) and race bikes. So um, me and a buddy of mine found uh a mountain bike race series over in Morrison, Illinois, which was on the uh the border of Illinois and Iowa. And every few weeks they'd have a mountain bike race over there. So we would pile on the car at five in the morning and uh, run over there and, and and do a race. I remember my very first race uh was soaking wet in the mud. Uh, in like January or February uh, all I had were like shorts and a long sleeve t-shirt and um, it was a blast I don't I don't remember it being cold at all I have pictures (laughs) of me being like soaking wet and you know snow on the ground Uh, but uh, I guess these trails were owned by a guy that they did, um, like motocross and they did, um, like, uh, um, drag, uh, what was it like this drag type of drag racing where you, uh, where you like drive these things through bogs. Um, it, it was okay. totally weird. So they didn't care. Like if you were tearing up the land, like they do on trails nowadays,
1: or cross races, things like that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, so we, you know, we rode in the mud and, and everything. So I loved that. And then um, I was also a gymnast. So as I got into high school, I started getting way better at gymnastics and the cycling fell aside, ended up going uh, into the gymnastics world hundred percent and uh, attended the university of Illinois as a, as a gymnast where I also got uh, a degree in fine art. For the first, it's like 14 years after I got out of college, I coached, I was a professional coach for high level girls gymnastics um, for a long time. So when I got out of college, my body was pretty beat up. I have a bunch of, you know, broken back, blown out knees, blown out shoulders. Um, So I really didn't do anything for two and a half to three years after college, kind of recovering. Uh, and I put on a bunch of weight. One summer, decided I was going to try to get back into shape. And didn't really know what I was going to do. Built up an old Cannondale that was probably like 58 or something. And I'm you're not a super tall guy. I, I ride, yeah, I ride a 51. So <laughs> uh, I was I was very on the very wrong type of bike. But right away, I fell right back in love. Love with it.
1: From cycling into gymnastics. Um, is that something that you just kind of stopped abruptly? Did they phase into each other?
2: I was always a really tiny guy. Uh, going into high school, I was under four feet tall, and that's pretty small. Oh, under five feet tall, and uh, didn't yeah didn't even weigh a hundred pounds. I think I was ninety five pounds, and like four foot ten or four foot eleven going into high school, and all the guys that I was racing with they started going through puberty and I was just getting my butt kicked all the time. Um, my, the buddy that I started racing with actually, um, got so fast. He ended up going pro. Oh, wow. He ended up racing, um, for, uh, the national team and raced for jelly belly back in the early two thousands. Are we still talking mountain bike? He, he rode. he, he moved to the road okay but uh so gymnastics was great for a small tiny guy um and so when I started to see some success in that uh it was really kind of easy at that point in my life to to just shut off the one thing and uh focus everything on the gymnastics and I am absolutely one of those um personalities that like when I find something that I like it's it's like 110% have to do that all the time have to live that like just totally immersed in 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 that kind of stuff so uh yeah I was like oh I'm not good at cycling you know I'm never gonna beat these guys I'm gonna go into this thing where I'm already you know doing really well And at that point in my life, it was a it was a really good decision to make. I mean, uh, I I had a lot of success in it. It allowed me to, you know, go to a college, a a really good Big Ten university. Um, You know, I I was a a Big Ten conference champion. Uh, uh, I became, um, you know, one of the stronger guys in the country at rings for for a time
1: is that where your specialty was
2: uh yeah i had i did i ended up uh specializing on four different events rings high bar floor and vault um rings was my best Um, my favorite event was high bar um what's that um it's just a single bar about uh is it 100 it's a it's nine feet off the ground um you see it at the Olympics of guys swinging around in big circles on, on the bar. Um, so that was, that was my favorite thing to do, but I I never really scored as well as I did on the rings. So I did, you know, all the iron crosses and, and stuff like that. But, uh, me getting that strong, uh, I ended up growing quite a bit, uh, and, um, my competitive weight, was around 160 pounds, which is actually kind of heavy for a gymnast. So it, it definitely beat up my body. Um and uh I ended up uh tearing a lot of things and, and breaking a lot of things. Uh and um you know after college I was I was more than ready to be done and move on to something else just yeah I wasn't I was totally done being an athlete at that point in my life
1: yeah so when you're in college and you're uh rocking the rings are your brothers still mountain biking is dad still racing the road bike
2: no so my brothers never got into biking like I did Uh-huh. dad by the time I got into it um he was all done he got into cars and stuff my brother's um one was a a really good soccer player and then he got into gymnastics he followed me into gymnastics uh and then the other one was kind of he he was good at sports but he was more into uh the arts kind of stuff um but yeah i was really- you also have an art degree
1: which yeah. is something that i learned and i think is really interesting
2: yeah so actually uh, my my whole family has a lot of um, Art in it uh my dad is a industrial designer um my youngest brother uh he is um he has a degree from columbia for uh acting for um animation he is certified to do uh to choreograph stage fighting with like swords and shit like that that's pretty badass yeah yeah that's pretty cool um, you have to get certified for something like that. I guess I don't know. Uh, I know that he took classes for it, and uh, yeah, he he loved it. He he did really well in it. He's actually um, uh, creating a commercial for me right now. Uh, he's doing a, a cartoon commercial for me that I'm hoping to put out here. Um, That's cool. Yeah, yeah. They they were totally. Yeah my, my dad was all, was all done and into something else um, every everybody in the family at a, at a, for a time actually was all in gymnastics um, they kind of followed me into it after i had had a lot of success in it but they didn't they didn't go as far as i did yeah
1: so you were just raised around uh, the arts and, and being around engineering it's also some of that same kind of critical thinking So you think that's really come into play now where you're at uh, in the work that you do?
2: Yeah. um, So the funny thing about the way that I think, um, uh, as a young kid, when I wanted to um, work on my bike, or if something broke on my bike, um, I had to pay for all of it. Uh, And um, I did. I, I talked my way into getting my first job at 13 at the bike shop. Um, But uh, I still, even then, um, couldn't afford to do all the stuff that I needed to do. So I would ask my dad, can you help me fix my bike? And I figured, because he had been riding bikes, he knew how to fix bikes. Well, the the only thing he ever told me was, well, just take it apart and remember what order you took things apart. (laughs) So I learned how to completely tear down bikes. Um, and back then all the bearings and bikes were all ball bearings. Yeah. Uh, so I tore down my bike multiple times, uh, especially after every mountain bike race back then we tore apart everything, uh, to repack bearings and everything. And you uh, got to
1: put things back together and you're always one bearing short. So <laughs> every time you rebuild your bike, you just lose a bearing.
2: Yep. Um, but uh, but actually, it turns out my dad had no idea how to work on bikes. Um, I didn't learn that until uh, a few years ago. He had he had no idea. I always thought that my dad had taught me how to work on bikes, but no, he <laughs> just said go work on it, and I figured it out myself. Um, but just kind of having that freedom to like tear things apart and. Um, And slowly but surely kind of figure out how things worked uh really kind of helped me uh in a lot of parts of my life um it made me uh much more uh willing to to try things especially mechanical things um uh you know if if i if i can kind of see how something works um i i don't need a lot of um time to really figure out how to how to you know recreate that or or remake something Um, so yeah when it came to um, you know learning how to repair bicycles uh, it, it, it felt really intuitive to me
1: yeah the bike as a machine is very much a cause and effect kind of thing where you like squeeze a lever it moves the cable and then something happens in the back you know so it's very linear yep. so that's the way my brain kind of works is this chase the problem kind of yeah. thing like if you've yeah. got your bike in the stand and the brakes doing something weird you start at the lever you squeeze it is the cable moving and you can just kind of work your way back right um, so i'm one of those people that kind of works on a larger picture by eliminating the small problems you know and once I can start scratching things off the list then I'm like okay it's either a or it's B right sure I couldn't look at a schematic and you know chase something that way especially you hand me an electrical schematic and look at that of just like oh no yeah me I can't me- do
2: that <laughs> it took me uh literally until probably uh this summer uh to to be when you, when you mentioned electrical to like be able to work on electrical stuff. And it really was like, I finally got sick and tired of a a switch in my house, not working and, uh, just was like, okay, I'm going to go after this. Like I've, you know, done for my bike and, and done for, you know, all this other stuff. I'm just going to, you know, go at it the same way. Um, but yeah, if you showed me a drawing of how, you know, this thing's put together, it, it wouldn't make any sense to me. I, I have to, I have to see it. I have to do it myself
1: so what did you think you were going to be when you grew up you know being around all this art and engineering and um kind of a creative uh, home
2: actually uh it, once i got into gymnastics i was a hundred percent gonna be uh, a gymnastics coach for the rest of my life um i you know i at one point i wanted to be the next bella caroli who he was um you know the 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 guy who basically made women's gymnastics in the United States, uh, like the world powerhouse that it is now. Um, so I, I just wanted to be this super coach, you know, uh, coaching these, these amazing kids. Um, and so, uh, actually when that part of my life ended, it was a really, it was a struggle, um, to try and figure out what I was going to do. Um, and it was pretty soon after that that um I got into uh you know, kind of fell into the repair part of um carbon fiber r- repairing bicycles uh it was probably it was probably four or five months after I left uh the gymnastics coaching world that um I picked up the carbon fiber repair. So how'd that happen? Uh so it literally was um, uh, i crashed and broke 5 bikes in 2 weeks wow um, yeah it was a it was a rough summer um and are you talking
1: road road bikes for these i'm i'm going to assume that these are, are crit races
2: yep all all crit races um uh i had um yes yeah, two of the bikes were mine the rest of the bikes were all borrowed <laughs> uh, uh and uh yeah so it was really rough and so at that time there was a guy that raced uh, on my team who was doing repairs in st louis uh and he called the business uh, front cycles at that point and he had uh, a degree in materials engineering and uh he was he was uh I think he was doing some stuff at Lindenwood um, but then he also worked over at Zoltec uh, which they are a carbon fiber manufacturer here in St. Louis and um, so he was doing the repairs on those bikes and he told me that he was going to go back to school and get his master's in materials engineering and he had to go To Montana or something, apparently. That's one of the better schools for that. And so I was freaking out like, no, you can't. I I have to have somebody here. Because
1: I keep breaking stuff.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And at that time, like, people around here, we only knew about Kalfi out in California uh, that was doing it. So uh, I offered to buy the business off of him, which you know really was just some supplies um a bike stand um and some uh damaged frames uh and a few hours of instruction and um and a promise that you know if i had questions and called him he would he would answer my questions um so i bought the business off of him um, and for the next couple months I just played around with damaged frames, uh, figuring out, you know, how to go about doing these repairs, making sure I was doing it right, um, you know.
1: So you kind of learned this out of necessity.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Totally necessity. necessity.
1: Um, so there wasn't a day when you're like, okay, carbon repair seems kind of cool. Let me see if I can, you know, break into that field. It yeah. was... Purely yeah. because you were you were breaking frames and you wanted to keep riding and
2: yeah I mean at that point to me you know carbon fiber was this space age material that you know only scientists messed with um, you know it was a it was a very um, exotic thing to to be able to like learn how to how to um, harness this material that was like this super material. Um, and to be able to fix my bikes.
1: I think to most of us, this is still a space age material. Oh, sure. Yeah. Very, very few people understand carbon like you do.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It it took a few months. Um, and then I, yeah, I, I can't remember exactly how I put it out there. Um, I, I came up with the name, um, TW Carbon. It actually TW actually stands for training wheels. Um and it came from I I had uh, about around the same time I had started an indoor um compu trainer studio. Uh I rented a space over the former Mesa Cycles, mm-hmm. uh the Maplewood Clayton area. And I bought 10 Compu Trainers and tried to, you know, have a you know, kind of like what uh power up is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I called that training wheels.
1: So this was going to be like a training facility. So you were going to kind of take what you wanted to do with coaching gymnastics. Yeah. And now you're in a carbon repair on bikes and you wanted to kind of stay with that coaching thing on, on the bike side.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the Trainer thing actually came before the carbon fiber thing. So I had gotten that started Um, and then, uh, very soon after like a week or two talked with this other guy about buying his business and the place that I was working at the time, I was working in a factory over in Valley Park. Um, and I was able to get a bit of area in that factory to, um, work on stuff.
1: So, so what were you making uh, Making there in your day job? Uh,
2: I was making uh, gymnastics equipment. Oh, okay. I stayed in the industry and uh, was making equipment for gymnastics. Um, and uh, we, we made uh, high uh, high-end trampolines also.
1: Yeah, uh, those things are death traps. I know every kid who had a trampoline in the backyard had a broken finger or a broken arm in the family or in the neighborhood.
2: Oh, yeah. I don't know
1: a single kid who had one and this was before you'd buy them and they would have kind of that fence thing around them that keeps you inside.
2: You can, uh, the trampolines that we make, a lot of the kids, if you look for kids on Instagram that are doing these crazy five, six, seven flips at a time, a lot of them are doing them on our trampolines that we make here in St. Louis. And they're actually doing them on the lowest end trampoline that is supposed to be for like just like kids bouncing around in their backyard. Like it's not made for this kind of stuff that they're doing on it. It's crazy. These kids are crazy. Um, so anyways, yeah. So I had, I was able to, you know, find some space in that factory to work on stuff. So basically I'd get up at like four in the morning, go into this training studio, which most of the time was empty. We, it didn't. It didn't do very well. Then I'd go to work um, at the the gymnastics factory, and then after work, just go over to my space in the factory and work on whatever bikes I had uh, laying around. Um, and so, very slowly uh, over the years, just kind of started building up um, my name. Uh, getting more and more known in the area and trying to get my name out there, um, you know, national. Basically, when COVID hit um, was when I finally decided that it was time to, uh, you know, quit everything and go 100% focused on uh, TW Carbon. And I moved my shop over into Kirkwood uh, on Manchester Road.
1: So were you still doing the training wheels bike studio while you're making trampolines and learning carbon repair?
2: For for a short time. I think I think that lasted about 8 months. Um and then we decided it wasn't it wasn't doing enough um we didn't want to keep carrying it and the carbon fiber uh was doing decently well already. Um that Uh, we just, we, we basically paid out the rest of the lease and closed everything down. Yeah. That ended pretty quickly. Um, but since basically I had, I had started, you know, the, the way the business was, uh, TW Carbon was underneath that CompuTrainer studio business. That's why we ended up naming it TW. It was basically Training Wheels Carbon. Um, it's kind of how that that all came together
1: i think you need to make some carbon training wheels <laughs> I, th- yeah. I think you should make at least one pair
2: yeah
1: just just because i mean strider bikes are apparently carbon oh, yeah. now. that's really
2: yeah that's crazy
1: yeah so covid hits and then you're just like screw it we're gonna do this full time
2: yeah um so i got i got laid off um when, when they shut down everything, um, the factory had to close since it wasn't, um, it was non-essential, but TW Carbon is considered a bike shop. So I was able to still go and work. Um, and
1: are you essentially a one man operation at this point?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, I, I have uh, I have one person that uh, comes in and helps me a couple of days a week, um, and she's been uh, uh, learning how to do the repairs and doing a really good job at it.
1: But when you were in Valley Park, you were just doing this by yourself.
2: Yeah, Valley Park, it was all all just me. Okay, yeah.
1: and then you move into the new space, yep. and then you hire on Leah.
2: Yeah, uh, she, yeah, Leah's helping out part time, a couple of days a week. Um, and she, she started off, uh, just prepping frames for painting. Um, and then, uh, probably a couple, a month or, month or two ago, uh, we started, um, she started working on, uh, training to do carbon repair.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. Um, yeah, so let's kind of walk through the process since most of us don't understand the space-age material, other Um, than it's on Formula One cars and apparently kids' Strider bikes. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm the customer. I bring you my cracked bike frame and we'll say it's cracked on the top tube. I drop something in the garage, it hits the top tube and there's a crack in it. And I say, Nick,
2: fix this. Yeah, what we would do uh, is um, I would I would like to get a, a visual of of what the damage is. The most common thing to hear from a customer is that it's a very small crack. That's the hardest thing um, to try to explain to a customer is, is the damage that you see is very rarely the damage that's there. Um, I also try to...
1: When I was in the shop the other day, you had that, uh, was it an Amanda up on the stand? Yeah. Um, that Leah was working on. You're kind of telling the same story about the customer thought it was just a small little, um, a little scratch or a little crack, but it was the length of the entire top tube on the inside.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I also, the, the thing that helps me figure out what the damage might be is also figuring out how the damage happened. Um, so that particular frame the customer said that like a book had fallen on it or something um or something had fallen off a shelf so even me looking at it visually and hearing what he had said i didn't think it was going to be a very large uh damage area Mm -hmm. um but you know if you came in and you said oh my top tubes cracked uh it happened in a crash uh in a bike race um, so that, to me, um, that means that basically your handlebar swung around and, and hit your your top tube, um, and that damage very often is super explosive, mm-hmm. and oftentimes takes up a large chunk of your top tube. Um,
1: so that would be a lot more visual. You could see that right away and say,
2: "What I can, what I can see, um, I can see." You know where your damage is, and I can tell you uh, about um, where the minimum amount of damage probably is at. But I can't tell you the 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 full extent of the damage until I open up the carbon and get inside and start looking at the the layers. Um, and so the what what the damage really happens that you don't see is that the layers um of carbon fiber delaminate um so you basically can think of like sheets of wood or or paper or something kind of glued to each other and uh this impact has damaged the glue in between those layers oh okay and you have to remove all of that that all of the damage uh anywhere where there's there's layers that aren't attached you have to remove all of that
1: so does that so, mean just cut it out
2: yeah yeah so it all it all gets cut out and and the reason you have to do that is is um the vibrations from riding can create can can cause that that delamination to propagate
0: and oh, keep okay. that going makes sense
2: going and so carbon fiber is only strong when it's uh combined with this this resin matrix and as soon as that matrix is broken carbon fiber is a very weak thing it can it can be it just falls apart. I mean, it, it, if you if you grab a piece of, you know, strand in my shop, it it doesn't look like that amazing of a material. Um, it, it has to be put together with the resin. And the resin by itself also is a very brittle and weak thing. It's the two things that come together that create these, this super, super strong, awesome material. So you have to get rid of all that delaminated material um, and uh, there's a few ways to do it. Um, the, the easiest way to explain it is you, you basically are looking for uh, layers that you know are, are coming apart when you, when you're cutting it open. Um, so then once you get rid of all of those pieces, uh, what you're going to do is you're going to feather the edges, um, back. So you're basically, um,
1: so at this point have we stripped off any paint or anything yeah. like that, or have you just cut into the frame and, and well, found where we
2: everything just, is we just cut it. So we, we cut in right where we know the crack is at. And we, we, we cut a, a small hole where that's at. And then we start basically, um, going out from there. And trying Mm -hmm. to find anything that that's damaged uh, okay yeah that that can be anywhere from you know the damage area is right in that vicinity all the way to an entire tube uh ends up being destroyed
1: yeah so is this something that you band-aid so do you buy like squares of carbon and then just lay it on there and then no we um, throw some paint on it how what is this process because you said you had to build the layers and you've got the resin in between all the layers
2: yep so we we buy rolls of carbon fiber um we buy we use at our shop we use two different types of carbon fiber basically we use a a two by two twill weave um which is you know the kind of the the weave pattern that you, you see a lot of times on, on bicycles. And then we use a 24K um toe carbon fiber, which basically it looks like uh it looks like a, a shoestring um, mm-hmm. that comes on a, a 10 pound roll.
1: Yeah, I saw some of that in your shop the other day and then I was trying to visualize how that piece of string turns into a woven kind of swatch or, or whatever. And I'm like, man, does Nick sit here and just like basket weave this carbon fiber until he has a piece that matches the crack in the top tube of that Trek?
2: No. So (laughs) so that, so that is our unidirectional fibers. Um, and the unidirectional fibers are the, those those are the workhorse fibers in a, in a bike. Um, a, a lot of bikes, uh, really are made up of a large portion of just unidirectional fibers and and carbon fiber it's strongest in the direction that the fibers are pointing so if if you think about looking down your top tube most of that top tube is made up of fibers that are, are running just straight back and forth along your top tube there might be a couple layers that go, you know, perpendicular to your top tube, uh, and up by the head tube, there might be some that are, that are in diagonals of your mm-hmm. top tube, but for the most part, it's, it's going straight back and forth.
1: So when you're talking about this stuff, we have layers of carbon and then resin and carbon resin. How many layers are there going down a top tube?
2: Uh, it totally depends kind of on like, like, what part of the top tube you're in? Uh, what manufacturer you're talking about? You know, there there could be you know anywhere from five to twelve layers of carbon fiber. Okay, uh, but that also um, kind of depends on did they use weave layers? Did they just use unidirectional layers? Weave layers will build up thicker tubes uh, with with less layers than a unidirectional fiber will. Uh, and that basically is just because of the, the weave just creates a thicker, um, mm-hmm. just cr- creates a thicker ply basically. Okay.
1: So you've, you found the hole, you've cut out the bad stuff, and now you're going to work in a new piece. How, how does that work?
2: So we have to, basically create some kind of bridge that goes across that hole because carbon fiber has to have, um, it has to be compressed um, when when it's setting up um, because you have to basically smush all of those layers together um, that you put in there and you want to basically squeeze out any excess resin uh, that you might've laid down in there. So you have to have some kind of bridge Uh, And what we do is we, we create a mold a lot of times that will get, put it inside the tube and gets pushed up against the tube and, and epoxied in there. Uh, And then we will, we will basically match the orientations of the layers that we took out to try and, and match what was in the bike to begin with. So we're not making the bike stronger than it was we're trying to match what was there when it came to us
1: um so i had a hand-me-down carbon frame that had a crack seat stay it was just given to me so i was like cool carbon frame yeah but the way it was repaired it was basically somebody just had a square piece of carbon and they just wrapped it around where the crack was yeah and it looked kind of chunky but I was just you know okay that's what carbon looks like when it's been repaired I didn't know any better and I remember anytime I'd get out of the saddle and sprint on this bike it was on the drive side so the right side and I would push that right leg down it was almost stiffer and I would feel like rear wheel kind of skip off the ground just a little bit oh wow you couldn't feel it when you're sitting down and, and just kind of pedaling along. But when you like really went to put some power in there, um, the left side and the right side were not
2: the same. Yeah, I've I've, I've heard a lot of people talk about that. Yeah. And, and we really try to not let that happen. We really try to to match everything. Um, and you also have to be worried that one, doing a repair like that, not removing old delaminated stuff you know, you can still have delamination happening. And then two, doing a repair like that creates creates stress risers where the end of the repair is at. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to, you know, you have to feather the edges of the damaged area and then you have to feather the repair in also so that you're spreading out those, those stresses
0: mm-hmm. that are
2: going into the frame so that they're not just, being focused at the place where the repair and the old damage meet basically.
1: Yeah. So what's the most difficult part of a bike to repair?
2: Uh, the, the spots where, uh, tubes join.
1: Okay. And why is that?
2: Cause you have to, cause you have to compress those areas. I don't use, um, some guys will use vacuum bagging. Um, and that's, that makes uh, doing complicated shapes a little bit easier. However, to do vacuum bagging, you have to create a vacuum seal in the entire frame. Otherwise, air will oh, leak, okay. and you won't be able to make a vacuum. And then also, you'd have to have pumps for every single frame that you're doing. Well, if we're doing multiple frames at one time, I would need multiple pumps. Oh, okay. We don't do vacuum bagging, and so uh, we use. Basically, it's basically like a Saran wrap um, to put compression uh, on the area that we're working on. And so, you think when when you're working with complex shapes and stuff, you have to think about how is this material going to compress this area. And so, sometimes you have to add. You know, we we have um, foam at the shop that we will create shapes to put into areas to make sure that everything is getting compressed equally uh, when, we, when we wrap these damaged areas. So yeah, definitely where seat stays and, you know, seat tubes meet or bottom bracket areas, though, you know, where, where all that stuff is happening, those are definitely uh, some pre- pretty tricky spots to work on.
1: How long would it take to do that top tube job? Like how many man hours do you think go into the customer hands it to you and explains where the crack is till you're ready for
2: paint? Uh, for paint. So, yeah, you're probably looking at 10 to 12 hours of work going into that before paint.
1: That sounds like a really long time to be covered in resin.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and the thing to remember is like you generally only work on a, a bike for thirty to forty five minutes a day and then you you know set it up to get ready to cure overnight. So Mm. these are, you know, it's not like you can always work on these things. Like a lot of there are a lot of bikes that it takes multiple days of setting stuff up and curing and setting stuff up and curing. And yeah, it's it's not a one time thing a lot of times. So that that bike, especially since we didn't expect it to be an entire top tube. It was a little trickier sometimes when we know that it's going to, it's probably going to be a really big repair. We can prepare for that. um, And we basically create molds before we, we tear a whole thing apart. So, you know, if it ends up being a whole top tube, we basically would have like a mold for a top tube ready to go. Uh, And if it was a smaller part ended up needing, that's okay. We, We can just mold this smaller part. But since we thought that this was going to be a smaller repair, we didn't have those molds made. So we had to use kind of older techniques that I have come up with over the years to to fix that one.
1: So again, this is you kind of figuring out how to do this on your own, you know. Yeah. I'm sure you've done your research and done some YouTubing and all that kind of stuff, but you didn't go to carbon fiber school. No. And it was just like working on bikes with your dad. You just kind of figure it out.
2: Yeah. I mean, once once you know generally how the material works and you have a good understanding of how mechanical forces work, you know. And you've crashed enough frames. Crash crashed enough frames. And, and, and <laughs> I, I've repaired thousands of frames now. This is the first full top tube repair that I've done. And there's the amount of you know, things that I've had to, you know, invent to, to re, to rebuild these things. Yeah. It, 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 it's one of the more fun parts about the job is, is it the mental, the mental gymnastics that I have to do to figure out how to, to, to do some of these repairs? I mean, yeah, there, there's no, there's no school for this. Nobody, even, even if you do go to school for carbon fiber, nobody teaches carbon fiber repair. You know, generally it's thought that the guys that know carbon fiber know that carbon fiber is one of the most repairable materials in the world, but carbon fiber is generally used for aerospace or military or, you know, these super high expensive things that they can't have that kind of stuff. And so if, if a repair is needed, generally they just throw it away you know, whereas, you know, in our sport, we can do these repairs. And and it it really just kind of depends on how much money you want to spend. There's almost no amount of damage that can't be fixed. It's just, do you want to spend the money to fix it? Or do you want to take that money and go buy a new frame?
1: Yeah, so you just, uh, you painted my Cannondale. It was destroyed after a gravel race. There wasn't a ton of carbon damage, but most of it was was on the pain and came through the clear code and, and I reached out to Cannondale to see if I could get a crash replacement uh-huh. and it was actually cheaper to have you redo the whole frame um, than to get a crash replacement from Cannondale which I don't forget what the lead time was but it was quite a bit out um, and it was a uh, dealing with warranty stuff in the bike industry is always very painful. (laughs) So for me, it it was a no brainer. It was like, I can design my own frame now and I can work with this local business and I can get exactly what I want. The bike before was cool, but this paint job is way cooler. So so it it, it worked out. Um, And I'm totally glad I did it. I didn't realize how repairable carbon was. Um, you know, I wasn't dealing with the frame cracker or, or anything like that, but you know, the first time when I was working in a shop, I was working at Southside Cyclery and that was the first time I ever owned a carbon frame and was selling them. And I just remember picking it up being like, Oh yeah, these race bikes are really light. And then you kind of tap on it with your finger and it sounds like it's made out of nothing. You yeah. know, it sounds yeah. like it's just really thin. There's like an echo to it. And you're like, how can this be strong isn't it just gonna like snap in half anytime I do something to it you know wrong and I think a lot of customers kind of have that hesitation because there's not a lot of understanding about the material and the process people understand metals they see this piece of metal is cracked and they know oh we can weld this yeah but you know what goes into carbon fiber
2: yeah and you know the thing to to that I've been that I've actually talked to a few people about is in the bike industry we don't have a whole lot of steel bikes anymore, unless you go and have a, a steel frame custom built for you. Most of the bikes nowadays are are aluminum. There is nothing you can do to repair an aluminum frame. So, you know, I, at one point, I I years ago, I actually bought an S Works Alley. They they had them for a year or two, maybe six or seven years ago now. And literally, the first race that I took this thing out at uh gotten a crash and bent the rear triangle and and that was it. There was smoke. I, I couldn't repair it. I looked everywhere trying to find somebody that would repair this thing. Nobody would touch it. If that had been a carbon fiber frame, you know, I, I could have repaired it. And I, you know, I have I've had carbon fiber frames that have had that same damage and have had it repaired. So, you know, the the you know you get a lot of guys that say, you know, I'm going to go buy an aluminum bike because it can take the beating that a carbon frame can't. And it's not, it's not true. I mean, the carbon frame can take just as much or more beating than an aluminum frame can. And yeah, you know, the thing about a carbon frame is when it finally does hit its limit, it will crack, whereas an aluminum frame will bend. But that aluminum frame when it's bent is just as shot as the carbon frame is when it's cracked.
1: When when I was buying this gravel bike, I've I had a carbon road bike, which to me didn't seem as you know risky for somebody who doesn't understand carbon fiber. Okay. But then I bought the the carbon gravel bike. And I'm just in the back of my mind when I'm riding it, I just picture these rocks flying up and hitting the bottom of the the frame and I'm like man one of these rocks is just going to shatter this frame
2: like <laughs> it's,
1: it's so fragile yeah. and you know it's it's like riding a mountain bike and being freaked out when it gets dirty you know yeah bikes are meant to be ridden but still you know not when I was kind of taking that on I had no idea and it it still kind of like gives you goosebumps sometimes sure sure so once we've got all the carbon fixed then you go into paint so, I was super impressed with how well you were able to match the decals on my frame. Um, and just going through your Instagram, seeing all these other frames where it looks like it came from the giant factory. Like, I, how do you do that? How do you get them to be so perfect?
2: I use um, Adobe Illustrator a lot of times, and I will basically go in with a, a photograph or a JPEG of a logo, and I will recreate them in Adobe Illustrator. And then I basically turn it into a file format that I can uh, load into my vinyl cutter. And then I cut out masks to be able to paint those logos onto the frames.
1: Yeah, so the painting is a whole another aspect because you can do painting without doing carbon repair. Right. So what percentage of your work these days is somebody coming in just for a paint job um, versus somebody whose bike is being painted because it needed carbon repair?
2: I would say that we're probably 60 or 70 percent paint right now. Oh, really? Maybe more. Yeah. So paint uh, pretty early on, starting in like January of 2018 was probably when the paint really started to take off. And since then, paint has been the thing that has built the company, basically. I can't remember a time where we didn't have at least one bike in the shop that was being custom painted. There have been plenty of times where every single bike in the shop is being custom painted and I don't have a carbon repair in the shop. Carbon repair has always been fairly sporadic, but the paint stuff has been just consistent. And even though, like, I have a degree in art, the paint thing, like, when I started, we didn't do any paint. Um, It really wasn't until people were really asking to, like, do paint matching and stuff that I started looking into like learning how to do that kind of stuff because my degree in fine art has nothing to do with you know spray painting or anything
1: yeah so before were you just fixing the carbon and then throwing a
2: clear coat over it nothing and it would just be exposed to carbon probably the first year that we did it like it was just i'm gonna fix your carbon and you'll get it back with raw carbon and you can figure out what to do with it after that the first year that we did that, that I was doing this, you know, I might've had a dozen people that I worked on. So it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of people. Uh, and they were so happy just to have their bike fixed that it wasn't an issue at all. Uh, but yeah, people started asking for the paint matching, uh, and then had a couple people request custom paint jobs Um, but then really it wasn't until I did a, uh, the butcher box racing team that, uh, things really started to blow up. And, and, and when I started really, uh, documenting things on Instagram, Instagram has been a huge driver of business. Yeah. You have a pretty big following. It's getting decent. Uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely some, some paint people I follow that have a, have a big lead on me, but. Yeah, I've been I've been working on it.
1: Yeah, I followed Black Magic Paint for a while now. Yeah, they did, they did some really cool stuff. Stuff I didn't think was possible. <laughs> so so paint matching, um, we talked about this a little bit when I was in the shop the other day. But how do you get that red Amanda paint to match exactly?
2: It's it, it's really been uh, a lot of trial and error. Um, and understanding, getting a better understanding of color theory. That was something that I really started to dig into the last couple of years and trying to learn more about, um, uh, to understand, you know, what goes into colors and how your eye sees color and how color interacts with other colors around it. And then understanding you know the limitations of of the paint, um, how you know the, the paint that I use is a is a fairly translucent paint. Um, so it it requires it requires more blending um, than if I was gonna use uh, a different type of paint. Yeah, you know, there there really isn't anything that I can point to to say like, you know, this is how I do X, y, and Z. Because it's still like I'm still learning uh, every single time I have to paint match something. Uh, I'm still, you know, learning and trying to figure it out. It it, it never really feels like I've got a, a great handle on it, especially when I have to do those specialized neon reds or, or Cannondale greens or something. Those colors are the bane of my existence. Anytime you with a neon color, I I I, I it, it, <laughs> blood it makes me shudder because these neon colors are just they're so hard.
1: And I imagine the fades are are pretty difficult too.
2: Uh, I mean, it it depends on what colors you're you're using. Darker colors are easier to to match, but lighter colors, yeah, if you're doing fades or something, yeah, it can. Yeah, just right now it's making (laughs) (laughs) stout.
1: Sorry. So you do bikes. Do you do anything else? Do you do wheels? Do you do car parts? Do you do, you know, anything I have that's carbon fiber and broken? Can I bring it to TW and say fixes? Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I've got, I've had, I had some car parts in this last year. Um, I had a guy bring a race car in once. The whole car? Well, he brought a fender in, but he had a whole race car that he bought that was busted up all over the place, uh, that the whole shell of this car was made out of carbon fiber, and he wanted me to fix it. I've worked on kayaks. I I worked on the most crazy kayak I've ever seen in the world that had uh, these two paddle arm things that this guy used to win the uh was it the mr340 which is a Mm -hmm. kayak race from kansas to st louis yeah man i i I work on anything i'll paint anything it doesn't have to be carbon fiber uh it has to be small enough to fit into my shop you can't drive a car into my shop my paint booth (laughs) is not very big it's not a i have to say that my Kirkwood permit that it's a limited uh, painting area. It's not a paint booth. <laughs> <laughs> if it fits in my shop, if it fits in my, my space, uh, I can paint it. I can fix it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. So
1: I remember, was it a year ago or two years ago? You, I guess it would have been more recently that you had a frame that you were going to take to the handbuilt bike show.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about that. It was going to be this last spring. I was going to take uh three frames. I was going to take a BH G7, a uh, um giant TCX and a BH Lynx mountain bike. So yeah, I had uh I had always seen the North American Handmade Bicycle Show and thought it was awesome. And then uh I guess I saw on uh, one of the, like the Facebook forums that I follow that they said that you could go as a painter, and I had never known that. And when I found out, I was like, I'm I'm going to that show. I'm gonna be in that show. And so I started working on it right away and and trying to figure out what I was gonna paint. So some of the painters that I follow and I I kind of admire on Instagram, all of these guys. The most difficult paint job that I've seen them do has always been the Mondrian-style paint job, which is basically, like, look, uses it. The La that that the team. They, they had that look. It's all the the white, but the red, white, and yellow, and blue squares and stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's always been a really cool design.
2: So all these guys have all done it, and they're always, you know, these showstopper, bikes and the ones that I've talked to that have done it have always said that it's the most difficult and challenging paint job they've ever done. So I was like, all right, I gotta if I'm gonna try to put myself on these guys' level, I gotta try to do this paint job and I'm gonna do it bigger than everybody else has done. I'm gonna do the entire frame. Cause everybody else, they always do like the top tube or just parts of the bike. They've never done the entire frame. So I designed a whole layout, you know, in Adobe, you know, did all the work for all the the checkers and and lines and everything had got that all cut out. I I actually documented it. So if you want to ever go back to my Instagram, which is just at TW Carbon, you can look on my um, IGTV videos and you can see the step-by-step process of me painting that bike.
1: It must've taken forever.
2: Oh yeah. It, it was, it was easily over a hundred hours on that bike.
1: Just on paint.
2: I think it was, a it was around 80 hours on paint. Um, but then if you count the the design and the, all the layout stuff that I had to do, I had to, I had to create all that, all that masking in illustrator. So, and then, and then just taking the time to try to figure out how to lay it out, how to, how to actually technically, make that happen. The weird thing is is that I actually started off uh with the black on that bike. I started with the black and then masked off that to make all my lines. Oh, okay. Then did all did all my colors and then did the white as the last part of that.
1: Yeah, looking at that frame it looks like it would have gone the opposite direction.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It it seems it's so counterintuitive to go that way. And every person that I talked to said that I shouldn't go that way,
1: but are you glad you did?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that was totally the right way to do it. I mean, it was the only way to do it without having to add more steps for masking. It was the fewest amount of masking steps to be able to do it that way. But, uh, yeah, man, that just the, the, uh, the time it took was, I mean, it, it it basically blew my entire month of February working on just that didn't work on any client bikes. I mean, I still had bikes coming in and then they just all sat there, but this was all, you know, the show was going to be, you know, March 17th or something like that. And it was, and we all know what happened then. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Then the the show was And that was a that was a huge blow, man, but that that was definitely the point where I realized like this was a really big deal. You know before that i I didn't think Covid would be anything more than you know what SARS was or any other uh, big pandemic they warned about before when that happened, uh, that that was that was when things finally I was like, holy shit, this thing's this thing's really bad.
1: You moved to your new shop. When, when COVID hit and other businesses were shutting down, it was a good time to kind of transition. What has happened to the work volume since swishing shops and since the pandemic? Because I know I have some friends that just are in construction. And as soon as the pandemic hit and everybody was sitting at home, maybe just dealing with things around the house that we hadn't thought about, but now we're looking at them. So I'm curious as to know how many, of those frames that were sitting in somebody's basement that they're like, well, I'm not gonna be riding bikes for a couple months. So maybe I'll send that off to get fixed.
2: Yeah. Um, I definitely saw an uptick when we got the stimulus checks. <laughs> <laughs> Work has definitely been steady and I definitely haven't felt like, you know, I get to like sit around and be lazy. Um, we're definitely busy enough that I I I wish I could have Leia in more days and it's also i mean don't get me wrong like going off and doing this during covid seemed like the dumbest thing in the world to do i had already just had things in motion before covid happened and there really wasn't any way of stopping everything without losing everything Mm -hmm. um it was it was kind of a I've, i've already jumped off this cliff like i can't turn around now kind of thing Uh, And I kind of looked at it like, well, you know, I'm so small. It's not like I have to keep making, you know, X number of dollars every month or this business is going to close. Like the business is not doing huge numbers or anything. Uh, So it it was easy for me to say to myself, okay, I can can do this super lean and and be really frugal and still make this work. So let's...
1: Talk about the new space. Um, it sounds like you just kind of fell into this too, as far as the location goes. Um, had you already been talking to Dirk at Billy Goat about moving in there?
2: Yeah. Um, I started talking to Dirk in January of this year. I had reached out to some realtor friends in the bike industry in, in the area that are into biking and asked them if, if they knew of any spaces that were available that I was definitely looking to, to move out of where I was working before. Uh, and Peter Halsey was working with Dirk, who was trying to find some tenants to move into his shop, which he's got a very large building for a bike shop.
1: It's a very historic building too. Yeah,
2: yeah. Been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I met up with Dirk and he showed me the space and I fell in love with it. Almost immediately. I mean, my wife and I had been going around and looking at spaces, and before this, you know, the the best spot that we had found was again basically in the basement of another factory. So I would have been in you know this dark hole in the ground where if a customer came to see me, you know, they would have to have walked through like a mile worth of this confusing factory. So to find this space that was on manchester road had its own door its own front door had a garage door that i could open up on nice days and
1: it's attached to a bike shop
2: yeah and yeah next to a bike shop uh it was perfect it was it was amazing um so yeah we we shook hands on the deal almost immediately and uh i got to work getting permits and everything from from kirkwood
1: to get moved in so where is a tw going now What's your, uh, where do you see yourself in the business in two years?
2: So I have, I have big dreams for TW Carbon. It's the, it's the getting to them that I haven't quite wrapped my head around yet. You know, I, I, I I believe that one of the shortfalls of my industry is that there are so few of us around um, and that. A majority of people that want to use carbon fiber repair or custom paint have to ship their bikes to someone. So I would personally like to open up shops in more areas, more large urban centers, try to just be more accessible to, to people, basically be like another type of bike shop. Mm-hmm. You know, in the meantime, you know, how, how do I get to that position That space. You know, really TW Carbon just has to get on the same level of recognition as some of the other big carbon repair businesses. You know, we've got to keep showing that we do quality work. You know, we are a a safe and reliable company that you can trust that when you send your bike to us, that you're gonna get your bike back in good working order and that you can be sure that it's gonna be as safe and sound as the day that you bought it. Being trusted like that takes time, takes a lot of hard work. And so that's something we got to figure out how to do. So, you know, in two years, I hope that we are still around. Um, I hope that I've got a few employees that are helping me, that, you know, we have grown in a stature that we're, that people farther and farther away know who we are and, and recognize us.
1: What's the furthest job that you've had, Um, you know, customer the furthest way who has shipped a frame to you for repair or something like that?
2: San Jose, California or something like that. And how did they find you? Came across me on Instagram, man.
1: And just shot you a message and was like, hey, I got this frame.
2: It was a a giant. Yeah, they wanted a a black on black. And I think I ended up doing a black on pearl black just because I was getting so tired of black on black. Like <laughs> you're, <spend, laughs> you're going to spend all this money. They have, a yeah. paint in you want black on black. I was like, come on, man, let's do something.
1: Do you ever have to talk customers out of ideas because they just like aesthetically won't work or, you know, for, for whatever reason, you're just like, in my professional opinion, this is a terrible idea.
2: Uh, a few times. Yeah. There's been a, a couple of times where I've tried to talk someone out of it and, they want me to do it anyways. It doesn't turn out very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, you know, uh, I did a bike uh, recently for a customer who I really, I really wasn't sure about this thing. It was a, uh, a bike that had a, it was a, a Picasso inspired bike. And uh, the guy that I was doing the bike for he also has had an art background and lived as an artist in like Soho, New York for years. And yeah, we we talked about this bike and we, and, you know, I kind of hemmed and hawed on, you know, is this you know really what we should do? And it, it really pushed me. It pushed my boundaries of, you know, what I thought was okay with design, but it ended up turning out great. Like it looked awesome when we were done with it.
1: Yeah, I saw some pictures. They looked really cool. It looked like you literally took a paintbrush by hand and painted that frame.
2: Yeah, that actually, I did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. It's funny because I saw that and I was like, man, that masking looks like, you know, he, he hand-painted that thing. How do you get the masking done like that?"
2: that? That was a last-minute decision to do, you know, getting ready to do it. And at the last minute, just decided, I was like, man, this this needs to be done by hand. Like I can't, I can't just spray paint this on cause it's not going to look right. It's not going to feel right. Like Picasso painted with these really long brushes and stuff. And it was, it was very wild and flowy. And I was like, if I'm going to make this thing look right, it's, it's gotta be done like this. Yeah. And it turned out so good. And I was so happy that this customer pushed me to to do that. And yeah, I mean, again, that that's another one of those things. Like I I get motivated by the difficult carbon repairs. I get motivated by the difficult paint jobs. also. You know, I, I want those paint jobs that make me think, that scare me. I want the paint jobs that scare me, that I have to, it has to be set up in the stand and ready to go. And I walk past it for a week because I'm scared to death to start on it because it's going to be so hard, but then I finally get going on it because I I have to, I have to game plan. There's a lot of bikes that I have to game plan that, that I, I just have to let sit there because I have to, you know, my brain has to work on it and figure out how, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get through this, how I'm going to make this a success. Um, and they're terrifying to start, but once they're done, it's, it's the best feeling.
1: So how do we get in touch with you uh, to get some carbon work done or, or paint? What's the best way to get in touch and uh, get that quote?
2: Uh, you can email me, text me, message me on Facebook or Instagram or Reddit.
1: Okay, so <laughs> just holler. Yeah. Holler at your boy.
2: But, but yeah, yeah, I, I, we have a website also, uh, twcarbon.com. Uh you can reach out to us through that website. Also, I think it has our my phone number and email address, Nick at TWcarbon.com. Shoot, you could even call me. People still do that? Some 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 old people do. <laughs> I feel like I
1: just zoom people now. Yeah. You can't tell you the last time, except maybe my mom. I think my mom is one of the few people I actually talk to on the phone. Uh, Everybody else is text or Zoom like yeah. this. Yeah great well thanks for your your time i really appreciate it yeah. it's you. a super interesting story um you know coming from riding a mountain bike as a kid and into collegiate gymnastics yeah. and an art degree and you kind of self-taught to fix this carbon and do this paint this is super red yeah well thank you very much man
0: i really appreciate it Again, huge thanks to Nick from TW Carbon for being on the show. And a huger thanks to you for listening. Really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. I want to give a huge shout out to Joe Wimler for the graphics. And my boy SV from Jim's Pool Room Records.com for putting together that theme music. Next episode, we start our first episode in a three-part series on our mountain bike coaches and clinics here in the, uh, the area. It's going to be a really cool series
2: until next time.